Welcome to We've Got Issues. I'm Joshua Holland. This week, we're going to speak with Luke Harding from The Guardian about Russia's imperialist war in Ukraine. Uh, then we're going to talk domestic politics with Amanda Marcotte from Salon. Um, but first, uh, House Select Committee probing the Trump regime's mismanagement of the COVID pandemic was released this week, got very little attention, um, certainly relative to the Select Committee looking at January 6th. But it confirmed the worst of what we suspected was going on behind the scenes. According to the report, a press briefing by CDC officials in February of 2020, very early in the pandemic, set us on a course that would end with the U.S. having one of the highest mortality rates in the developed world. Um, that briefing pissed off Trump, who then ordered that all public health officials' communications with the public had to be signed off on by the White House, which manipulated um, the information coming from public health officials uh, in order to downplay the severity of the, of the pandemic uh, and boost the stock market. I mean, this was the, the, the central kind of goal was not to address the pandemic, but what, to get reelected. Um, beginning that month, and I quote, the Trump administration set out to assert complete control over the dissemination of information about the coronavirus to the American public. Uh, as part of a dangerous effort to benefit President Trump's perceived political interests. In the months that followed, Trump administration officials engaged in a wide-reaching effort to co-opt CDC's public messaging and muzzle CDC scientists, seeking to downplay the virus and control the public narrative about the pandemic. So that happened in February. Two months later, Trump installed Michael Caputo, this wingnut, a, a longtime political ally as assistant secretary for public affairs at HHS as the department of health and human services. And, um, he was made the point person in, in approving or rejecting coronavirus communications. And according to the report, um, he used quote, bullish behavior designed to make CDC personnel feel threatened. Um, Quoting from the report, officials from Mr. Caputo's office attacked CDC scientists when they publicly shared information that Trump officials believed contradicted the administration's messaging. Um, he, uh, in an email obtained by the select, select Subcommittee, a senior advisor to Mr. Caputo attacked a forthcoming CDC report as garbage and uh, that was, quote, designed to hurt the public and the administration. Um, the Trump uh, Trump team repeatedly altered CDC and HHS press materials, um, and, and their whole goal was to promote positive news and downplay COVID risks. Um, Trump administration officials, and I quote, repeatedly interfered in the process for drafting and issuing CDC coronavirus guidance, overruling CDC scientists to help to weaken public health recommendations in an effort to benefit President Trump's uh, perceived political interests. So they <clears throat> they also, um, so a bunch of people at CDC resigned when they moved to close the southern border under the guise of mitigating uh, COVID spread. They determined in, CDC determined in the summer of 2020 that the evidence was scientifically there to support a mask requirement on public and commercial transportation, but they 
they were told by administration officials that a mask requirement, quote, would not happen. Um, the CDC public health public health officials later told the select committee that if it had happened, if they had made a mask mandate earlier, it could have saved American lives in 2020. Um, there was uh, just it was just a sprawling effort to uh, influence the process, quote, manipulate the content or block the dissemination of at least 19 different CDC scientific reports that they de- deemed to be politically harmful to the president. And they were also, um, according to former CDC employees, they were then ordered to destroy evidence of political interference. So I know this isn't going to get much attention in large part because we're all pretending that the pandemic is over. But I, I think it's important to understand that our pandemic here in the U.S. was so much worse than it had to be because we we put an unhinged narcissist in charge who only cared about his prospects for re-election. And the irony, of course, as we noted at the time, we talked about all of this in 2020, 2021, was, was that his chances would have looked a lot better uh, for a second term if he had taken the outbreak seriously and prioritized public health. Uh, I, I don't think he would have won. and the, the needle didn't move that much despite the pandemic, but... Uh, it certainly wouldn't have hurt him. Anyway, you can check out the report uh, for yourself. It's uh, it's an interesting read. It's at coronavirus.house.gov if you are so inclined. We are going to take a quick break and then move ahead with the show. Stay tuned. This is my recital. I think it's very vital to rock around. That's right. On top. Here we go. And we are back. I am very happy to be joined now by Luke Harding. Luke is a reporter for The Guardian. He is also the author of several books about uh, Russia under Vladimir Putin. His newest book is coming out next, uh, later this month. No, I'm sorry, next month. Uh, it's called Invasion, the Inside Story of Russia's Bloody War and Ukraine's Fight for Survival. Luke Harding, welcome back to We've Got Issues. Thank you. Great to be with you again. Thanks so much for taking the time. Um, any desire to try your hand at Prime Minister, Luke? Well, I mean, <laughs> I mean actually, you know, everyone else has. Uh, I mean, what, 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 why not? I mean, there's I been don't a, think you could do any worse than your the, predecessors. Th- there's been a hilarious gag. One of the, the sort of tabloid newspapers um, here in London has uh, had a kind of uh, had a sort of a lifetime video of Liz Truss, the now ex prime minister, and a lettuce with the question. <laughs> <laughs> Which will last longer, the, the lettuce or Liz Truss? Um, and yesterday, the, 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 the Home Secretary um, resigned, having recently denounced the Guardian reading tofu-eating wokarati. And so some tofu was added to the lettuce. Anyway, 
to cut long story short, both the tofu and the lettuce outlast the mistrust. Yes, uh, you know, it's funny because like there is something sitting on this side of the pond. It is wild to see how fast opinion can shift. And it is interesting to see um, politicians react to the sentiment of their constituents in such a in such a rapid in such a rapid way. I mean, six weeks, that's the shortest prime minister uh, ship in British history. Forty four days. Amazing. Yeah, exactly. And also it's a it's a tragedy if you if you view it as a tragedy that was obvious to everybody. I mean, I mean, this trusts many things, but she she is not a great leader. And, and for, for a frontline politician, she can't really communicate. She sounds like a, a robot or, or a tin man or some wooden creature. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Even when she was resigning, she didn't sound very convincing. So I, I don't know what the gods will give us next, but, but I think that I think we'll there's, there's certainly a, a movement for a general election. And uh, I mean, if that happened, you would you kind of expect the labor to, to win, right? I mean, well, well, well you would, polling. but, but, you, but you, 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 as we've discussed before, I mean, we, we live in an uh, era of unpredictable um, election results. Yes. Uh, and also of, of foreign interference by dastardly outside powers. So yes. goodness knows what will happen. But, but yeah, we, we, it feels a bit like the, the end of Rome here in, in London. Yeah. But... Well, let's talk about, uh, let's talk about other catastrophic uh, events happening in, in Europe. Um, I did not ever expect to see a major land war in Europe. You're in London now, but you have uh, been reporting from Ukraine, uh, from several cities in Ukraine. Can you give us a sense of what it feels like for people trying to live their lives in a modern European country under the constant threat of attack? And I don't think that this um, has really registered with us viscerally what that what that feels like on a daily basis. Well, I, I mean, I think just as a kind of exercise of imagination, what you have to bear in mind is that that Ukraine is just like where you are. <laughs> I mean, it's not a huge amount different, and Kiev is is a is a major European capital where you can get great coffee, you can order artisanal pizza, where hipsters. Uh, scoot up and down the, the boulevards um, on e-scooters where, um, you know, people fall in love. They have families, they have kids uh, who go to school, they have they have parents. It, it's not a faraway place. It's really the heart of Europe. And as you say, it's it's been rocked by Europe's biggest armed conflict since 1945. And, and really what's happened is it has been this overweening, and crazy invasion by by Vladimir Putin, which has been going on since February, full-scale invasion. And his goal is nothing less than to subjugate Ukraine and and, and make it stop existing, to wipe it from the map. So it's no longer a country or a a people, but it's a a province um, of of Russia. And he, he, Putin, sort of sees... He sees his mission as, as, as being a kind of messianic one to... Well, the verb they always use is to gather, to gather Russian lands. And, and this, this would be ridiculous, were it not for the fact that, that he's, he's made it happen. And, and we've seen a remorseless military campaign. We've seen the, the cynical um, uh, bombardment of Ukrainian cities, particularly in recent days, trying to wipe out energy infrastructure. And we've seen the, the leveling of, of, of entire metropolises, whether it's Mariupol or Kharkiv, where it was recently, which has been really badly 
battered. Um, and it's just an awful grinding conflict. But one, I think that ultimately the Ukrainians are going to win because they know why they're fighting, that, that for them it's existential. And you talk to any Ukrainian soldier and they say, uh, you say, why are you fighting? And they say, I'm fighting to protect my kids, you know, my wife, my home, my family, my, um, you know, my country. Um, and, you know, the, the, the Russian soldiers sent there pretty reluctantly, you have to say, but by contrast, you know, that they, they don't really, they're not clear why they're there. And, and Putin's own story has shifted from fighting Nazis, as he calls the, the Kiev government, to demilitarization, to saving the Donbass, which is the, the area of eastern Ukraine, which Russia has, has effectively part control since 2014, uh, to fighting terrorism i mean it's just a mush it's completely incoherent so no. so the ukrainians are winning but they haven't yet won and russia has not yet lost the momentum has shifted dramatically since the ukrainian armed forces launched their counter counteroffensive in the summer um even before that in the since the beginning of the war when russia failed to take kiev in a in a rapid you know pincer movement, whatever, a lot of military experts have expressed surprise at both the resilience of the Ukrainian military, but also the weakness of Russia's kind of vaunted armed forces. This had followed a decades-long campaign of military modernization. I wonder if, given your um, background writing about Russia's kind of institutional corruption, you were less surprised than some of the military experts. Yeah, well, I mean, firstly, I, I always thought Putin was going to do a large-scale um, military operation. And, I, and when he began sending tanks and armored vehicles to Ukraine's borders in, in the fall of last year, I thought, okay, th this is not this is not a sort of theatrical show. This is this is for real. And I started going to Ukraine. I went to the front line in outside Donetsk, uh, and you know, got shot at by, by a Russian sniper who, who, who fortunately missed. And uh, in, in January, went to Mariupol on the Sea of Azov, a city that no longer exists, that's been, was pulverized with, with tens of thousands of civilians killed in, 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 in the spring. So, so the, the, the scale of the assault didn't surprise me. I mean, I think you're right. I mean, corruption has definitely played a role. Um, people still everything in Russia, whether it's fuel from the tank or, or cartridges or food, or it's an entirely corrupt and kleptocratized, if you can call it that, um, society. But I think, I think the biggest failing, is, as well as corruption, was probably intelligence. I mean, Vladimir Putin prides himself on being a, a brilliant spy. He, he's a KGB officer. His thinking is impeccably KGB. He hates America. He's a sort of zero-sum diplomat um he's profoundly anti-western um but he was told by his spy agencies that the ukrainians would rise up and greet invading russian soldiers with flowers that they would kind of welcome them and that, that there was a sort of corrupt pro-western government of volodymyr Zelensky, ukraine's president and and all these other kind of slightly backward rural russians as moscow sees them would would either welcome russian liberation in inverted commas or acquiesce and of course what we've seen is fire and flame and fight back and ukrainians you know in the early days of the conflict tried to stop tanks with their bare hands and, and latterly with the help of the us the biden administration the uk and other kind of nato countries latterly really you know giving a master class in 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 how to defeat a, what appears to be a superior um, enemy using good intelligence smart tactics and an awful lot of bravery
Now, we are seeing finally some shift, it seems, in public opinion, in Russian public opinion towards the war. Um, the clunky mobilization, partial mobilization, is, as Putin called it, um, has been seen as responsible for that. Can you talk about that a little bit? To what degree uh, is a war that had been fought disproportionately by like ethnic minorities from the periphery finally coming home for Russians in places like Moscow. Yeah, I mean, I think you're right. That there has been a big change in the way it's been perceived, or perhaps in the fact that it is being perceived. Because for quite a long time, actually, people in Moscow and St. Petersburg could pretend there was no war. They, they carried on with their lives. There were no air raids on the Russian capital. Um, sure, you know, McDonald's had shut, and um, booking flights was was trickier and and prices had gone up but but actually life kind of rolled rolled forward um and and as you say you know i i talked to survivors from butcher from from other uh places in the kiev region and and they 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 told these guys a lot of the people a lot of the soldiers early on were, were from siberia from baratia from faraway places from very poor villages um and the kremlin deliberately didn't didn't suck in fighters from from the big urban centers now that's all changed because the war's been getting so badly we've seen a, a large-scale mobilization we've seen tens of thousands of russians fleeing to neighboring georgia and other countries just trying to trying to escape and we've also seen the first mobilized soldiers being killed um and buried um so so definitely the war the war is biting in russia but i think we have to be a bit cautious i mean still i think putin enjoys what you might call loosely popular support for the war majority of people go along with it even believe in it some of them a minority are kind of passionately in favor and a, and a similarly sized minority are passionately against but but the reality is russia is not winning and and there's a mixture of frustration and rage and and mystification is why this why the, why the, this might be but but i mean ultimately the the guy who's responsible is is, is putin himself we have started to see some dissent, not from the anti-war movement, because that's been crushed, but from the right, for lack of a better word, from nationalist hardliners. So far, it seems that most of that has been directed away from Putin and towards various military commanders, uh, the intelligence agencies, etc. Do you think that's sustainable if the war doesn't turn around for the for the Kremlin? Uh, what do you, what do you make of that? The kind of um, the the sense that that the military leaders have failed. Yeah, I mean that's a really interesting point. I mean, there's a definitely a group, as you say, um, they're called Russian military bloggers or or mill bloggers. For short, and they, they are not liberals. Uh, they are um, hard ultra nationalists, sort of patriots or Kremlin loyalists who, who feel, uh, d- despite the, the, the enormous civilian death toll in Ukraine, that the war is not being prosecuted with enough harshness and that, and that, that more brutal tactics are needed. Now, now they. They seem to enjoy a license that that, that sort of liberal critics do not, in, insofar as they've been able to blog and, and discuss all this and, and complain. And what we've seen is we haven't seen the regime wobbling, but we've seen it sort of fracturing. There are there are splits. There are there's criticism, for example, by Ramzan Kadyrov, the president of, of Chechnya, um, and a very important um, uh, 
oligarch uh, called Prigozhin, who, who, by the way, was the guy who was behind the troll factory that, that hacked the U.S. election and presidential election in 2016, and they've been criticizing the the, 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 the general staff. But what's interesting is that they, no one's actually been explicitly criticizing Putin, and and. But yeah, I mean, the, 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 the idea of military failure is being discussed and it's, it's very painful for Putin um, and leads a lot of people to wonder what he'll do next. I mean, he's doubled down with mobilization, but, but there's the whole kind of nuclear specter. Would he, use, would he be crazy enough to use a nuclear weapon? I, I don't think he would, but, you know, that's all being kind of actively discussed. Um, and the, 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 the war is, is, as we approach winter, it's, it's going into a, even darker, grimmer phase. It's been alarming to see this, uh, all the discussion of the prospect of uh, the use of so-called tactical nuclear weapons. And I think, I think about the fact that the Cold War was marked by multiple proxy wars. Um, the Russians not only armed the North Vietnamese during the American war in Vietnam, but Russian pilots actually flew missions over Vietnam. We armed the Mujahideen, against Russia when it occupied Afghanistan. Why, why would uh, this conflict, backing the Ukrainians in this conflict, represent a red line when those previous conflicts did not? Sorry, red line for who? For Putin. I mean, why, why, would, why, are, why is the prospect of nuclear weapons even being discussed? Um, I mean, I think it's being discussed partly because you know, Putin... Uh, prides himself on being a psychologist. He likes to play with people's heads and to, he ha- I mean, he, he's clearly not much of a strategist, but he has a gift for sniffing out weakness. And he thinks that the the, 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 the whole nuclear issue, and, and bear in mind that his army has, has uh, seized this nuclear power plant, which I've seen in Zaporizhia in the south of Ukraine, essentially kind of aligning the you know, a civilian nuclear facility with, with the nuclear arsenal so that they're both, you know, weaponized or turned into to an instrument of, 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 of blackmail. Um, but, uh, you know, he, he sees this as a way of scaring the West, uh, dividing the West and, and prevailing. And he sort of seems to think that, that um, if he puts enough pressure on the West, that, that, that Joe Biden will call up Volodymyr Zelensky and, and say, you know, hey, Volodymyr, look, you may find this hard to accept, but you're going to have to sign a peace and give up a lot of your territory. Otherwise, we have World War Three. Now, now, what what, what is not sort of, I, I think still not fully understood um, is that Putin sees himself already as fighting America and NATO. I mean, that's how it's cast on TV channels in the evening. He sees that this is nothing less than a, a, a civilizational war for, for, for a world order, for, for how, how international affairs are conducted in, the, in, the, you know, in our century. He thinks he's fighting America. It just happens to be taking place on, on the territory of Ukraine. But America, for him, is, is the main adversary. And, and um, you, you know, part of you thinks he would, do, he would do whatever it takes to secure victory. But, but where I think that actually we can take some comfort is the fact that you know, the, the one takeaway from the last couple of years is that Putin is terrified of his personal security. I mean, the, the image that sticks with you is of him, a rather little man. I've seen him on one end of a long table and on the other end, you know, his chief of defense staff or his defense minister, Sergei Shoigu, seated 25 meters away. And my take for what it's worth is that, that I think Putin thinks that if he uses a nuclear weapon in Ukraine, 
the Americans will try and kill him with a nuclear bomb. Now, I suspect that Joe Biden would not do that. But so long as Putin thinks that Joe Biden might do that, we can all sleep a bit safer. Sander. <laughs> I, you know, I, I don't feel that comforted to tell you the truth. <laughs> <laughs> okay, I didn't reassure you with my, with my blistering analysis. <laughs> Luke Harding, I believe we are about out of time. I want to thank you so much for taking the time to speak with me today. I really do appreciate it. That, thank you. A great pleasure. Folks, stay tuned. We're going to take a quick break and then come right back with Amanda Marcotte. Looking back on the track for a little green bag. Gotta find just a kind I'm losing my mind Out of sight in the night Out of sight in the day Looking back on the track Gonna do it my way Welcome back. I'm always happy to have our next guest on the show. Amanda Marcotte is a senior political writer at Salon. She also writes the Standing Room Only newsletter, which I urge you to subscribe to. You can subscribe to it over at Salon.com. Amanda, welcome back to We've Got Issues. Thanks for having me. That's my uh, my microwave going off. I'm sorry about that. <laughs> uh, let's begin with some stuff in the news. So Yee, the artist formerly known as Kanye West recently uh, raised quite a few eyebrows when he spewed some really wildly anti-Semitic bullshit and then moved to purchase the failing right-wing social media site Parler, which I always thought was Parlay, but that's too French, um, <laughs> after he earned, earned a suspension on Twitter and Instagram. Now, of course, he was a big Trumper. He's been flirting with the hard right for some time. He's also well-known for being bipolar. A lot of people excused his wanton bigotry um, on his mental health issues, which I think is extremely lame. Amanda, you had an interesting take on this. What connection do you see between his embrace of, again, over-the-top bigotry against Jews with Kim Kardashian? Yeah, so this is something I've been writing about for a long time now. I call it the misogyny to fascism pipeline. And, it, you know, I didn't invent this idea, though I think I may have invented that phrase, but it's something that a lot of um, researchers like at the Southern Poverty Law Center and the Anti-Defamation League and other places have been really researching, which is the way that misogyny is kind of the gateway drug to far right and authoritarian politics. And what I mean by that is there's a lot of forums online, I'm sure listeners are quite aware of this because they're everywhere, that appeal to men who have anger and frustration with women, and they sell them on this like idea that feminism is to blame. And there's a lot of varieties of this. You have the men's rights activists who tend to be divorced dads who are mad that um, they didn't get custody, even though a lot of the time they you know were found guilty of domestic violence. You have 
the incels who are guys who claim they can't find a date and blame feminism for this when in reality it's usually their own rancid personality. Yeah. You have the pickup artist community, which um, again peddles these like extremely sexist notions that the way to get a date is to be cruel and vicious to women. And I think in no part, basically what all these groups have in common is it's men who don't want to admit (laughs) that they create their own problems and instead want to blame women as a category and women's independence and feminism. So what we're finding, what researchers are finding is that white supremacists and other fascist kind of recruiters go into these spaces and they sort of ingratiate themselves with these guys and use their anger and bigotry towards women to convince them to embrace all manner of bigoted ideas. Um, Great replacement theory, anti-Semitism, white supremacy, white nationalism. I won't bore you with like why the two kind of, I mean, unless you want me to, (laughs) why the two kind of weld together really easily. There's kind of an err conspiracy theory that makes it all hold together. But the main thing is once somebody's got the door open to one conspiracy theory against one group of people, they're open to a whole bunch of others. And and we've seen with with Ye that he is he's long time been a misogynist. I mean, I think that's no surprise to anyone who's a fan of his music or to some of the abuse he dished out to ex-girlfriends before Kim Kardashian. But he's really gone around the bend lately after Kim Kardashian divorced him. He's been obsessed. He's stalking her. He's sicking his fans on her. He threatened her, the guy she was dating for a while. It's been really bad. He's, he's basically every, the worst kind of men's rights activist. So in a sense, it shouldn't be a surprise that right wing activists were able to recruit him into full blown fascism. Yeah. Um, it's also worth noting, you mentioned that he had threatened, uh, Kim Kardashian's, I think not longtime boyfriend, um, Pete Davidson, who is, uh, at least half Jewish. So like there is a connection, a more direct connection in terms of this sudden outpouring of hatred towards Jews. And, uh, you know, that, that whole, I guess he felt humiliated by her leaving him for, uh, <clears throat> for Pete Davidson, although everybody sleeps with Pete Davidson, so I don't know. It doesn't yeah. nothing, nothing special. There. I feel it's like a, a rite of passage in, <laughs> in New York. <laughs> uh, let's talk about another prominent uh, black right winger who's made some news recently. You wrote a piece explaining why white evangelicals, or I guess I should say the religious right more broadly. Um, is not going to bail on Herschel Walker after it emerged that he paid for at least one former girlfriend to have an abortion. Also, his son, his very right-wing son, also came out and said that he was a a terrible father who was never around and who perpetrated violence against his his ex and his children. Is that more, is that story more complicated? The story of why the right will stick by him. Is it more complicated than them just prioritizing, you know, winning control of the Senate? Yeah. I mean, I, or I I don't know if it's more complicated, but I think that we really should not just chalk this up to partisan 
you know, ambitions. I think it really is that conservatives don't have a problem with any of this behavior, just like they didn't have a problem with Donald Trump's grab him by the pussy video, because at the end of the day, domestic violence, sexual violence, uh, controlling women's bodies, all of these things fit very nicely into the conservative ideology, which is one that's pro-patriarchy, pro-male dominance. Um, You know, they may find domestic violence and sexual violence distasteful, but they don't really have a problem with it. Not, not in any serious way. And, and I think, you know, you, you saw that a lot, especially in the reaction to the Brett Kavanaugh hearing where, the kind of dominant Republican reaction was that the real bad guy was Christine Blasey Ford for speaking out. Like there's this expectation that women should simply submit to such violence and be quiet about it and, and let men get away with it. And I, 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 <laughs> the 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 latest story about Herschel Walker is very much more of the same. Um, I forget what her name was. The right wing pundit who called his ex girlfriend a skank, <laughs> and and basically her argument was, yeah, it's the same. It's more of the same, which is like you your job was to get the abortion and shut up about it, so that he can pretend to be this godly man. Um, without in anyone, you know, everyone can just kind of pretend that he's this godly man instead of what he actually is, which is a liar and a, a misogynist POS. Yes. I mean, part of it is also, you know, very, very simply that um, people on the right are extremely sensitive towards in-group, out-group differences. And it's a central tenet of the authoritarian mindset that, you know, the rules that we want to constrain other people do not should not constrain people in our tribe, members of our of our tribe. That, that in group out group thing is is really important to understand. I think. Um, now we don't know for sure if there was more than one woman whose abortion he paid for. <laughs> um, <laughs> Roger Sollenberger, the, the he was the reporter who broke last week's story for the Daily Beast. He said that rumors that have been swirling about another abortion about an abortion. Um, that have been swirling around among Republican operatives doesn't really fit the story he reported on. So he's saying, well, yeah, there's been these rumors, but those details didn't quite fit. Um, but you wrote about the one that we know about. We, we, the one that, that came out and that he kind of, I think Herschel Walker has halfway admitted to. Uh, he, he still denies it, but he at least acknowledges that he uh, wrote that check, for example, that that the woman uh, used to verify her story. Um, so you wrote about the one that we learned about, about Walker's ex who did have a child with the former football star. So she, mm-hmm. he paid for one, an abortion. And then I don't know if it was earlier or later when they had a child. And you say that she is a quote, typical abortion patient. I'm not sure what that means. Yeah. I, it's one of those things that I think, my editor and I had been discussing a frustration that we've been sharing, which is it's good that a lot of the press is talking about these really kind of edge cases that there's a lot more of them than I think a lot, even 
those of us who saw this coming expected, where women who are miscarrying are not getting care, rape victims are not getting abortions. You're looking at like 10-year-old rape victims that aren't getting abortion care. All these horror stories are coming out, but we're worried that it's somewhat obscuring the fact that most abortions are people who simply had consensual sex and for whatever reason can't have the baby right now. And most of them are actually mothers, right? Like the majority of women in an abortion clinic on any given day have children um, by, by quite a bit, actually, it's almost 60%. And this is important because a, I think everybody deserves to be treated with respect and everybody deserves autonomy. You shouldn't have to be on your deathbed to deserve basic medical care. Second of all, I think that a a very common talking point of the anti-choice world is that women who get abortions don't know what they're doing. They are being manipulated by men. They're being um, bamboozled by abortion doctors. They don't know how wonderful it is to have a baby and how how happy they will be when they have the baby. And so reminding people that most women who have abortions are mothers already is, is super important because obviously they know what having a baby is like. And they're like, you know what? Not, not now. Yeah, uh, it's, 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 it's very important. And I think, um, this woman and, and even those who aren't having a baby right now, usually they, they plan to at some point in the future, it's really just the stereotypes about women have, who have abortions as being these like dumb sluts who reject motherhood and relationships. It, it's just false. You know, I mean, nothing wrong with rejecting motherhood or relationships. I, I don't want to be a mother, but it, it's just, it's used to demonize when what we should be doing is actually listening to the stories of women who get abortions. Yeah. I'm sensitive to this. And I mean, I see the, uh, certainly the political virtue of highlighting instances where, you know, the rape victims and, and, and also people having like ectopic pre- pregnancies and complications are unable to access care. But I, I definitely think that that focus comes with a risk because it suggests that, you know, the vast majority of people who opt to have an abortion because it's not the right time in their lives to have a baby, um, you know, we, we need to make sure that that large group of people um, maintain their rights as well. So, I mean, it's, it's a little bit of a difficult, uh, a sticky, a sticky wicket, if you will. Um, I'm going to switch gears here a little bit because I, I, before I let you go, I want to talk about a poll that was released this week, generated a bunch of alarm, uh, certainly on the internet. It found that um, majorities of voters in both parties, large, large majorities of, of voters in both parties, believe that our democracy is at risk, which it clearly is. But then only 7% of voters said that that was the most important issue facing the country. Uh, That was a a New York Times-Siena College poll, by the way. Uh, What do you make of this finding, Amanda? Yeah, a lot of people don't want to hear this, I've discovered. I wrote about it at Salon. But the fact of the matter is um, people 
don't fight for democracy if they think they're going to lose or that it's that the fight is already over. And I'm afraid that that polling dot, it's not that people don't want there to be a democracy. I just think they think that it's, it's basically gone already. And so they're shifting their priorities to something they think they can affect. Right. Um, that's unfortunate <laughs> because it's not true. Um, we still have a chance to save this democracy, but right now, there's a widespread perception in the public and this is not, I'm not talking about the Republicans who believe the big lie. You can just sort of bracket those people aside and just look at Democrats and and independents who also are very cynical right now. And over and over what they say is that the government, it doesn't, in a sense, it doesn't matter who you vote for. It doesn't matter who wins elections. The political elites benefit and everyone else gets to screw. Right. And it's, it's really hard to argue with that right now. I think things got a little bit better, you know, when Biden passed the Inflation Reduction Act and then, you know, the student loan debt forgiveness thing hopefully will help. So, but I think in the, you know, in the past few weeks, that's kind of been fallen out of the coverage of this election. And instead people are watching, you know, inflation rise. They're seeing that Donald Trump continues to not go to prison for his many crimes. And this cynicism, this belief that there's nothing to be done. It doesn't matter if Democrats win or Republicans win, we're fucked either way. It sets in. And, and that's really unfortunate because when that attitude kicks in, it basically opens the door to actual fascism because it, it demoralizes and demobilizes the opposition. Yeah. Yeah, that's right. I, you know, I had um, some problems with how the New York times presented this whole question. And I, it's clear to me that the times and other legacy media outlets are hoping for a GOP win and kind of pining for um the partisan drama that would come with it. Mm-hmm. But in any event, I think it's a kind of um, almost a waste of time to talk about threats to democracy in this vague sense without getting into specifics. Because, for example, one Republican voter that the Times interviewed for the piece that they wrote along with this poll said that the big threat to democracy is inflation. And I, you know, <laughs> like, what does that even mean? I just think it's very important to understand that Democrats are reacting to real things, to a coup attempt by the last president, um, the harassment and barrage of threats that election workers are facing across the country, um, voter suppression, uh, thinly veiled calls for political violence from elected officials on on the right and all the rest. And Republicans' fears are grounded in uh, ludicrous conspiracy theories about in-person voter fraud, and of course, the fear of changing demographics. These things aren't in any way similar, and I think it's important to point that out. Also, just in a narrower sense, um, the thing that got a lot of attention was the the fact that only seven people said democracy was the top issue facing the country. I think that those those kind of like, what's the top issue? Like, maybe you thought it's the second issue, right? Mm-hmm. The second most important issue. And I think a lot of people also don't understand, don't connect whatever it is that they think is the most important issue with democracy in terms of a way to uh, 
to address that issue. Anyway, Amanda, I believe we are out of time. I want to thank you so much for taking the time to speak with me today. I really do appreciate it. Thank you. I I look forward to hearing this and sharing it on uh, social media. Thanks. (laughs) Not parlor. (laughs) (laughs) I'd also like to thank Luke Harding and David Edwards, our producer and engineer. I'd like to thank the good folks at Alternate and Ross Story for supporting the show. You can follow me on Twitter at Joshua Hall, H-O-L, or, uh, and you can subscribe to the show wherever you get your podcasts. Of course, I would like to thank all of you fine people for tuning in. Have a terrific week.